Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by executive editor, Alexander Forbes. Hey, Isaac. This week we have something a little special for you guys. Alex was recently on a panel where he discussed art market regulation. I promise it's actually very exciting. Alex, can you maybe tell us a little bit about uh, what the panel was there to discuss and what role you played on it? Yeah, so I moderated a panel at the Art Business Conference in April. The conversation centered around art market regulation, but more specifically, a set of principles and best practices that Art Basel recently rolled out. They announced it in November, but it went into effect for selection for the Miami show, which is this coming December. And looking at how an organization like Art Basel that has some 500 galleries based in 126 cities around the globe attempts to self-regulate or provide some guidelines for the members that take place. So Nora Horowitz, the director of Americas of Art Basel, presented those guidelines. And then I was joined by Elizabeth Sanser, who's a notable art advisor, clients including Ronald Lauder and Stefania Bortolami, a prominent gallerist here in New York, as well as Joe Laird, who's a art lawyer. She helped advise on these principles. She also is the uh, serves as counsel for the ADAA, which is an industry group of American dealers, and was formerly the general counsel of Christie's. So a diverse set of backgrounds there on a fairly contentious issue in the art world and in the general interest media. Right. Sounds like if you're going to talk about art market regulation, these are the people to sort of chat about it with. And I think as you said, this is this is a timely and contentious subject because the art market enjoys, maybe the wrong word, but the art market enjoys the reputation of being kind of unregulated, wild, wild west, fraud, full of fraud and, and money laundering, and the conversation of how and if to regulate it and from where that regulation comes. Is it sort of internal within the industry or is it external by the government is continuing most recently in the form of proposed changes to the Bank Secrecy Act that the U.S. House is currently uh, working on, which would add art dealers and auction houses to the Bank Secrecy Act, essentially requiring them to report suspicious transactions. And this is the kind of regulation that the art market has long tried to avoid through self-policing. And obviously, you know, it's a long way from what gets drafted in a House committee to law. But this is all just to say that this conversation continues to be extremely timely. And it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, in lobbying against maybe these regulations, people point to sort of the self-regulation steps being taken by something like these initiatives through our Basel. So there have been an upswell of these kinds of initiatives in recent years. One responding to uh, the more litigious environment. There are more lawsuits that are happening that are relating to art that are garnering headlines. And public interest that, you know, the art market is, is an easy place to beat up on. It's a place where phenomenally wealthy people transact in fairly opaque ways. There's been an interest from the industry in trying to start these initiatives to prevent the government from imposing regulation that might get it wrong and thus negatively affect um, the outcomes for the industry as a whole. I think if you look at um, some of the reactions from the kinds of people that were sitting at the Art Business Conference, they would be not dissimilar to the kind of reactions that you saw from the tech community after the Facebook Cambridge Analytica congressional hearings. You know, it's, it's still just not very well understood, the art market. 
in defense of people who get outraged. You have something like the 1MDB scandal, where Joe Lowe is basically just straight up laundering money stolen from the Malaysian government by buying paintings and then taking out loans on those works. And that loaned money was clean. Oh, totally. That's not to say that those things aren't happening. There's a ton of that. We can't say exactly how much. how much of that <laughs> stuff is happening. But I think the, the interest in creating these kinds of initiatives is to say, on the one hand, those are outliers by and large, particularly within a certain core group of the market. In any industry, you're going to have people on the fringes. In this one, uh, some of those people might be kind of at the core. But if you look at the total number of transactions that are happening, the vast majority of collectors, one's got to hope, aren't laundering money. And the vast majority of dealers aren't selling fakes or swindling their artists. And so I think these kinds of initiatives are one to protect the trade and to try to create some, some more transparent standards and educate people on what those are. And I think it's worth distinguishing between something like the Bank Secrecy Act, which is meant to prevent money laundering, and, you know, these more internal regulations, which, at least to my understanding, um, often are aimed at sort of the more banal, but arguably more prevalent kind of fraud, for lack of a better word, where, like, someone sells a painting they don't have good title to, or they do it is a fake, or something like that, and rarely will that result in like a Department of Justice investigation, but uh, it does sort of undermine the integrity of the market. So that said, I think this is a good segue, Alex, like what actually is in these Art Basel self-policing guidelines? You're absolutely right. So the, the main thrust of these regulations are aimed at things that, you know, primarily hurt artists more than anybody else. Um, one of the, the key points is about paying your artists on time, which sounds pretty elementary and in some respects is. But as Stefania points out on the panel, one of the hardest things as a young gallerist is you get all this money in, but then you have to pay for your fare boost. You have to pay 50% of the money back to your artists. And so it's easy to get sideways and you know, fall down a slippery slope of mismanaged finances. As you mentioned before, there's a point around establishing clear title to works, making sure that you have the right to sell any work that you're selling, that you're giving a written invoice, fairly basic business stuff. There's points around uh, stolen, looted, and illegally exported artworks and forgeries. You probably shouldn't sell those if you want to be a reputable art dealer. And then there's a second section that has more to do with actual criminal complaints. So one of the points of doing this from Art Basel's perspective was to uphold also just the integrity of the fair as a brand and create trust within their marketplace. So it puts a little bit more stringent guidelines around if you have been even charged with some sort of crime directly relating to your business, you can be suspended from the fairs. You can even be expelled during the run of one and given a certain number of hours to pack up your booth. But it's really more about ensuring kind of the the integrity of the art market is upheld. We'll play that panel discussion in just one second. But before we get there, I think we should just kind of talk a little bit about maybe the limitations of these kind of guidelines. What are some of the outstanding questions left unanswered and maybe where do these self-policing regulations fall short? I think the most obvious one is that Art Basel is a group of 500 dealers in 120 cities. That sounds like a lot, but those are probably the ones most likely to follow these guidelines already. These are kind of a statement of truth of best practices that are already happening within 
their three fares walls by and large. Now, you know, we might see that there are a drop off of dealers that, that weren't doing this or, you know, who knows what happens. And there are certainly galleries that have bad reputations in terms of paying their artists on time. But the larger opportunity and what is kind of unclear is how an initiative like this has any effect on the people who are probably have the least amount of access to this information. Maybe they don't even know what you're supposed to do and not supposed to do as a dealer. Elizabeth talks about as a member of the Association for Professional Art Advisors, similarly within her field, that there's a lot of ambiguity and that some people just don't know, either on the client side or on the advisor side, what's expected of people. We haven't figured out a good way to do as an industry is to create that knowledge sharing, that opportunity for education, and a wider enforcement that has bite. You know, the fact that you can get pulled out of an Art Basel Fair or be uh, eliminated from contention for their shows in the future is pretty significant for dealers who make a lot of their money at those three fairs every year. Whereas other initiatives that have been out there in the past, really it's like an opportunity for everybody who signs it to get around and pat themselves on the back and there isn't really any way to enforce it. How we go out to like the five, 10, 50,000, however many thousand galleries there are out in the world and never mind auction houses and private dealers with something similar is kind of an, an unanswered question. All right, well, I think let's just jump right in. Without further ado, here is the panel. I think on the last point in the actual PDF, it says a, a specific number of hours that they would have to vacate their booth, which seems like quite the story if it were to happen. But uh, <laughs> I wanted to first start off with Stefania as your, uh, the person who would be most directly um, a- applicable to these best practices and get your reaction on um, this being implemented at Art Basel. I know uh, you're also involved with the ADAA and how uh, maybe those experiences differ, how you've seen these kinds of best practices applied in the past as well. Okay, so I have a, uh, I'm Italian, obviously, but I have an American business, um, and having a uh, business here also means, at least to me, to comply with the rules. So I'm also a guest in this country, so I know if I do something wrong, I'll be (laughs) shown the door, and (laughs) I don't want that to happen, so we follow completely the rules, and frankly, I, I feel that most galleries in the United States do. Um, because just simply there's too much Mm -hmm. checks and balances to to not make that happen. The ones that don't, maybe they don't end up being open for very long and they don't end up being in our basel. Having said that, I think it's... uh, very important. I'm part of the um, one of the committees of the ADAA, and when we <clears throat> look at um, galleries to admit to membership, we talk about especially um, their relationship with consigners, what um, criminal or you know if you had any com- complaint, criminal complaint um, uh, against the gallery, uh, if they pay the artists, if they pay the vendors, you know, what the general behavior. And I think that that's um, extremely important as a, as a business. You know, we have to uh, be, we want the art business to flourish. And I think the more people misbehave, the, you know, <laughs> the worse it will become. Mm-hmm. And Joe, having worked on 
both, I'm curious, you know, particularly with the Art Basel initiative being global, Mm -hmm. um, the added complexities that added in, any kind of key takeaways from that process and understanding how to expand something um, from the ADA regulations that you'd work on in a specifically American context uh, to a more global context for the trade? Well, it was different in a lot of ways. But first of all, uh, I think it's, it's important to point out how they are the same. Both codes really talk about issues that are fundamental, that are that are truths that ought to be self-evident. You don't sell things if you think they're fake. You don't sell things if you aren't authorized to sell them. Uh, you know, the things that, things that ought to be the basis of every gallery. Uh, the, the complicated factor or the complicating factor uh, with uh, doing it for Art Basel is that it is, first of all, an international uh, endeavor. Uh, and so there are a lot of different jurisdictions. Uh, and the relationship between the organization and the galleries is very different than, um, than the galleries to each other uh, in the ADAA. ADAA is a membership organization. Uh, everybody is there for the purpose of essentially promoting the best practices and being and, and being seen as a gallery that promotes the best practices. Uh, it, it, with Art Basel, it's a it's a it's a large group of galleries making a business arrangement with an organization that runs the show. I think as a result of that, two things. First of all, uh, we don't um, we don't go in. We don't go into uh, quite as much detail in terms of the enforcement. Uh, it really is uh, a lot, a lot more flexible in terms of the enforcement. But I think, given the jurisdictional reach and the and the 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 legal context, I think it made much more sense uh, in uh, in the Art Basel case to do that. The other thing is uh, that we are, uh, or ADAA, is an, org- is an organization that is made up of a um, hundred some odd uh, galleries just in the United States. So that while the, um, the Art Basel list is, is very straightforward uh, and, and really just states the, uh, the, the ultimate nugget of conclusion, uh, with the Art Dealers Association, we went into a little bit more detail, uh, in part because we were weaving in U.S. law, uh, and in part because, I mean, for as an example of that, we get into much more detail about the sorts of things that should be on a bill of sale, uh, and weave in the fact that um, that anything that is on the bill of sale that is material. Is, a, is deemed under U.S. law, under the Uniform, Uniform Commercial Code, to be a warranty. So that's specifically in. Uh, and the other thing that we were able to do is to weave in um, issues that had been, that had arisen in the market in the United States, as an example. Uh, the, uh, that an, excuse me, a gallery should not uh, should not consign to an auction house uh, works that be, are being consigned really for the purpose of the gallery buying them back or buying them at an increased price. That was something that happened. That was something that happened some years ago and that people were aware of. 
we say in another section, if, if another member comes to you at, a, at the fair or otherwise and says the, there may be an issue with this work of art, uh, that, that a member is supposed to um, respond, um, welcome the information. That is, they're not supposed to just shut them off. That happened. Uh, and where, where questions were raised about a work of art that was at the Nodler Gallery during uh, an ADAA art show. So these are things that if anybody in the U.S., any U.S. collector looks at it, they say, okay, they, those guys know. Also, the flexibility, and then I will be quiet, uh, the flexibility of the enforcement process, process really does give us uh, the ability to step in before or even without a, a, a criminal issue. Uh, when it became clear that the gallery who had, who had consigned things to Christie's in order to bid them up had engaged in that practice, the association was able to move uh, and to effectively ask the gallery to leave. Of course, the same thing happened with the Nodler Gallery. It's I guess, no, it's far from the first effort, as we've been talking about a couple of them, but there was also last year the Responsible Art Market Initiative that involved a number of actors across the industry. Uh, I think in 2012, there were the Basel uh, Institute of Governance Art Trade Guidelines. Um, you know, one of the most common criticisms that have gotten, has been put forth against these kinds of initiatives is that there isn't that much bite to them. You know, it's an opportunity for us all to get together, pat ourselves on the back, and say that we're, uh, we're the good ones. Um, but how, how important from your perspective uh, or from the perspective of Art Basel is it that these kinds of regulations have bite to them, that, that there are consequences? Um, and I guess a, across the, the panel would be curious to hear how, um, how enforcement can be taken forth a bit more and, and I guess pull back on some of those criticisms. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can address, I mean, the most fundamental aspect of it is that I think, you know, our hope is that it has bite, especially with regard to the criminal mm-hmm. items under consideration. And I think a large part of our thinking there is that in the end, um, you know, the gallerists that serve on our selection committees are there because they're, they're Stefania's colleagues. And these are people that work night and day to build up programs of artists mm-hmm. um, on the primary market that have gone in depth working with artist estates, uh, et cetera, on the secondary market. And that's their core competence. And with regard to issues around money laundering or dealing in fraudulent items, there is a separate mode of um, legal expertise that's truly required. And frankly, it's above and beyond the core competence of what our dealer network is. So in those instances, I mean, as, as I spelled out in the end, I mean, we have every ability to, to withhold admission to certain galleries and, and should we become aware of them. And such a process is, is adjourned over the course of one of our shows. We can you know, remove them from a fair. I think the code of conduct more broadly um, you know, should hopefully help to uh, inform all of those galleries that you know, the great journalists, that are, many of whom are sitting here, are writing on the, the woes of small and mid-market galleries, many of whom um, don't, you know, they haven't, they're not operating in, in, in a market like this with opportunities like we have today to, to transparently talk about these things. They're not as aware of all of these varying standards, and we're trying to, to raise the bar of professionalism industry-wide. And we felt in the end that as Art Basel, we have a unique ability to put something out in the world, and, and again, to own that responsibility that we have, um, you know, an organization that attracts something in excess of 250,000 people are coming through the halls of our three shows each year. 
year. Um, and and in, in time, we hope that that will raise the level of professionalism and give greater confidence to the buyers and sellers that are buying from galleries and that are part of our platform. I guess, you know, that does also bring up this question of perception versus reality. You know, we say that uh, within this group or, you know, within even the Art Basel galleries, there's probably a large amount of buy-in to the best practices as you get more into the expanded uh, art market, the globalized art market. Maybe there's variance there. Obviously, in the uh, in general interest media, there's been a lot of interest in covering these big legal cases, um, probably prompts some of these efforts as well. But I'm curious from each of your perspectives, you know, how, how much criminality or how many bad actors are there out there? Is there a kind of availability bias of the headlines versus <laughs> one, you know? Count them one at a time. Yeah. Um, I, you know, you get the, the reason for these sorts of best practices codes is, is because you, you, you really do want to protect the market uh, from the bad guys. And there are bad guys. I and and you know as an attorney in the area sometimes the things that you hear somebody has done leaves you kind of breathless. I mean you just go really you think that's okay? Um, so but I but I think that the that the bad guys among uh, among galleries and auction houses are really uh, the minority. I mean, they really, really are the minority. And that most galleries, uh, most gallerists get into the business because they love art. They, uh, they, they have no interest in swindling somebody. It's hard to make a, uh, a percentage, but it really, uh, it, it, they, they are not the majority. Uh, and the problem is, as in every other walk of life, the, the bad guys tend to get the publicity. Uh, you know, I would always, uh, a quick story from when I was at Christie's and we returned an antiquity uh, that had been, that, that we were told had been stolen. We absolutely gave it right up uh, and there was no question about it. We cooperated fully. And uh, the, the U.S. attorney, the assistant U.S. attorney said, uh, well, when we have our press conference, we're going to say that Christie's really cooperated. I said, thank you very much, and I promise you that in the New York Times over the weekend, the headline will be, Christie's tries to sell stolen property. <laughs> <laughs> and it was. And it was. So that's the bad stuff that gets more headlines. For art advisors, uh, it's a whole different ball of wax because today there are no regulations or certifying uh, exams so it's for one to be qualified to call oneself an art advisor. It seems to be a very loosely used term by many. Um, so, you know, as a sort of vice president of the Association of Professional Art Advisors, we really try to welcome to membership really, you know, the best in the field. We really try our best to vet every possible member the, the best we can to see how their practices fit in with our requirements, which is really you want to have uh, an objective art advisor who only has the interest of uh, his or her clients in mind and is only paid by those clients and doesn't have inventory and 
can be completely uh, objective. So it's a, it's a little bit of a battle for us, and it's not as clear-cut, I think, as it is maybe for, for gallerists. Um, but every time we think, well, do we have to ease up on our requirements? I mean, the art world today is so fluid. We always come back to, no, we have to stick to our guns. I was curious, actually, if you could just list out some of those principles, because I think it'd be interesting to, to go through it. It's mm-hmm. perhaps surprising some of uh, what your guidelines are versus um, some, of, some of the more typical conceptions of an art advisor. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, sort of briefly, I, I think that we focus on uh, sort of what I'll call the three E's, you know, <laughs> like uh, education, uh, experience, you know, uh, experience and expertise, and also ethical practices. Uh, I, I think that those are clearly very, very important um, for someone to become a member of the Association for Professional Art Advisors. One has to have had proven experience with projects and. Uh, and certain clients at certain level for a minimum of five years. And that's difficult, that's demanding. And to, we're, we focus now on, on all these people who said, well, I've left the auction house and now I'm an advisor. I, I've been working forever. I should be a member of your organization. Uh, we don't know what their practices are going to be. And maybe with five years, we can figure that out, how they're doing. Uh, do they fit sort of, you know, our our requirements. So, um, so as I said before, you, so you want somebody that is sort of educated, that has a background or a related background, an art historical background, that understands the business of art, uh, that also has uh, gained some expertise, that really knows what they're talking about. And if they don't, they know how, where, how to get that expertise through other professionals in the art world, you go to other specialists, you work with others, uh, and as I said, these ethical practices where you don't hold inventory, you don't ever get paid by anybody other than your client, you don't sort of double dip, and if uh, it's, you don't get any commission from vendors, any kickbacks, and if there is some other mode of payment, it's truly transparent and agreed upon ahead of time, even in writing, with your client. The client has to know exactly how he or she is being billed and for what. And it's very clear. Um, people charge in different ways. It can be a commission basis. It can be a retainer. It can be hourly fee. But it's all very clearly, clearly outlined. And that's very, very important. And you want to have an objective advisor. Noah, I, you know, you've put forward these gallery best practices, but I'm sure there are other determinations mm-hmm. that have to get made of uh, who gets to come to Art Basel and when. And, and you know, Some of the things that Elizabeth was just mentioning, is that something that you guys take into consideration when evaluating the, the many people that call themselves advisors? Well, I was sitting here quietly praising her. <laughs> like, uh, there's no term in our field that's more abused than art advisor. I mean, I think for some period of time it was the word curator, but I think art advisor is Trump. It's easy to become a gallery. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and I think it, this is a big challenge for us. And, uh, you know, we get bombarded and we're now in Basel mode now. Like, the amount of emails that we get 
um, by legitimate but also illegitimate people asking and, and not they don't ask they never ask they demand <laughs> um, VIP credentials for them and, and their mysterious clients and you know there's we're not involved in commercial transactions in the end you know we are a platform so there's limited amount of information that even Art Basel can possibly know about the various people that are coming to our shows but the more um, the advisor community um, can comply with with a lot of what you put forward which is rings very true and, and similar to what we tried to articulate <coughs> practices is why we in the end decided to, to put in you know this line of, of putting you know creating written agreements um, so things are clearly spelled out I mean again as, as a best practice um, is is a good thing uh, and 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 if we can do that on a global basis, it would be a great thing. If there's some way for our galleries, when they're sitting in their booth at a show, to know somebody is you know, an APAA card-holding member, I mean, I think that that would be one further way of, of, of fielding and vetting people that are walking the halls of the show. You know, young galleries, we were just in Hong Kong for our show in, in Asia. A young gallery from Taiwan or Indonesia has no idea who a really great you know, New York art advisor. They have no clue. They have no ability... Um, and it's an ability that they learn and they train over time to get to know more about who these people are, who's legitimate, who's, who's going to be wasting their time. But, I mean, it's, it's something that we as an organization absolutely would support, and, and it comes up regularly. I wanted to add something in terms of uh, from the point of view of a gallery. When I meet someone, <clears throat> a new collector, and sometimes they just started collecting. They always ask me, you know, you go to... There's so many galleries to choose from, so much art to choose from. How you choose? Well, sometimes I tell them to get an art advisor. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, I say, you know, buy from a gallery who, for example, is in Art Basel, because that's a sort of um, already a standard of, Mm -hmm. you know, if a gallery is in Art Basel, it's been vetted at least by their colleagues. And uh, I also say it because I'm in Art Basel, so I'm really trying to say buy from me, (laughs) and only from me. (laughs) Um, it's, you know, there is an amazing amount. You, you can spend a lot of money buying art that is really worth absolutely nothing mm-hmm. from galleries that will never get into Art Basel. And are, it's extraordinary. It's not cheap. You know, you can easily spend $150,000 on an artwork, artwork <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that will, has no chance of having any value at all the moment it gets out of the gallery. It's extraordinary. So it's, I think all this is important. And one thing that came up uh, when we were discussing ahead of the panel was that a lot of times when people go against some of these best practices, particularly when it gets into paying their artists and fiduciary duty towards their artists, uh, a lot of it comes down to financial pressure. And you know, no, I know in, in Claire's report this year, she highlighted that the ratio of galleries opening to that closing, it's actually that fewer galleries are opening than ever before. I was curious, you know, Stefania, to what extent, particularly for younger galleries, that, um, you know, when people are just starting out, that financial pressure and some of the norms of the art market, whether that's handshake deal terms that can fall through or uh, the lengthy payment uh, process that can, you know, be essentially an interest-free loan over months or or even years uh, is at cross-purposes with some of these best practices or at least young galleries being able to follow them? Well, the main pitfall, I think, for young galleries is um, to look in your bank account and you see an amount and you think, oh my God, I got all this money, without really realizing that 
the amount that you actually have is probably a third of that because you have to pay the airfare bills, you have to pay the artist, <laughs> you have to pay, you know, all these things are coming up the next day. We're not business people, you know, we love art. Uh, most of us studied art history um, or were artists, you know, definitely coming from the, from the creative side. So the business, though, is a business and it needs to have, uh, you know, <laughs> checks and, mm-hmm. and all that mm-hmm. stuff. So talking to someone who, if you can afford a business manager, that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, if you cannot, talking to someone who can help you learn the basics. That's all for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to the Art Business Conference for letting us use that audio. As always, if you have comments or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Shoot us an email, podcast at artsy.net. If you haven't already, please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps others find the show. Our producer this week, Louis Sansano, the production help from our editorial intern, Soria Tubak. The theme music is by Broke for Free. See you next time.